Everyone has a favorite Christmas song, but do you ever stop and reflect what these songs' root is from the Bible? In this series of messages, the songs of Christmas, journey through these songs of praise and adoration that are in the Bible and learn more about the true meaning of Christmas. It's a great joy. I'm I'm pumped to be here. Uh, We are beginning a series of messages today uh, entitled The Songs of Christmas. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the spontaneous songs about the birth of Christ that we find uh, throughout the New Testament in the Gospels. And we're going to take them and parallel them with a Christmas carol or a Christmas hymn that is beloved to the church and to Christians everywhere. Now, Christmas carols are different than Christmas songs. Christmas songs are fun. They ought to be sung. They're enjoyable. I hope that you have happy music all season long in your home uh, about the Christmas carol. I hope that it's a blessing to you. Uh, I mean, Christmas songs are different than Christmas carols. You say, what do you mean? Well, like nothing says San Diego Christmas like I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Nothing. If you're from San Diego you're, and live in San Diego, you are not having a white Christmas. You say, well, they, they said we could get snow. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And if it did happen, it would melt before it got here. We call it rain. You might have a wet Christmas, but you won't have a white Christmas. But we still enjoy the music, don't we? And we think of those places that are cold and, and we go outside in 75 degree weather and drink hot chocolate pretending that this is meaningful. Nothing says family harmony and marriage is strong around the Christmas season like I saw Mama kissing Santa Claus. A young Michael Jackson did a fine song job singing it, but let me tell you, nothing says harmony like that. And few things in life will conjure up Yuletide merriment more blessed than Grandma got run over by a reindeer. Now, I need to tell you a story because my brother's here. This is so funny to me. Growing up, our, our dad was very, very rigid. Like, you couldn't listen to any music other than church music. And one day, it was a Wednesday night after church, my brother got the keys to my mom's car, and he said, hey, come with me. He's five years older than me. He had been a bad influence his whole life, still is. And he said, come with me. And we went out. He goes, you got to hear this song. And he turned on the radio, and he found Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, the second secular song I ever heard in my entire life. My brother. So every time I hear that, I think of my brother. I really do. It, it's, it's a great joy. Nothing says giving like that time-honored classic of I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. I listened to that the other day like, oh, my word. I'm going to send my daughter Judith this year who will be in Hawaii for Christmas. First, I think the first Christmas she won't be home, 27 years old. And I will send her on Christmas Day that time-honored Elvis classic, I'll have a blue Christmas without you. I really will. I'm going to send it to her. She's going to cry. And I'm going to smile because she cries that I'm not there. But Christmas songs are great. But Christmas carols are different. Christmas hymns are, I'll use those as synonyms, the same thing. Uh, Christmas hymns or carols teach us deep theology about God. As a general rule, every Christmas carol that we will sing this year will have deep, resounding biblical theology about the birth of Christ or what we might call the incarnation of Christ because Christ was incarnated. He, he was not born in the traditional sense. He was given seed by the Holy Ghost of God into the womb of Mary and incarnated to live and die for the sin of mankind. Now, if you know me and you've been around Canyon Ridge, you know that I, just being honest, have not been a big fan of Christmas carols. 
Matter of fact, I've probably made too much fun of them over the years, but God's doing a work in my heart, helping me to understand the wonder and the worship and the celebration of the birth of Christ. So over the next several weeks, we'll talk about a priest named Zacharias, the song of Mary, uh, the song of the angels, and the song of a man named Simeon, each one celebrating the birth of the Christ child. Today, we consider a woman named Elizabeth. We find out about her in Luke chapter 1. Elizabeth was the wife of of a priest named Zacharias. She was Mary's much older cousin. I don't mean, sometimes we joke around uh, and say, oh, you're two or three or four years older than me. Mary, the Bible says in verse number seven of Luke chapter one, that she was well stricken in years, well stricken in years. In verse number 36 of chapter one, the Bible says uh, that she was of old age. Now, we understand something that culturally, anyone over 60 in their culture was considered well-stricken in years. Now, those of us who are approaching 60 uh, and get a little closer don't see 60 as that old. Some of you have passed 60 up and you're looking back going, man, those were the good old days. But the reality is when you're 13, 16, or 60 seems extremely old. When you're 13, 18 seems really old. I don't even remember being 13 going, I wonder what they do in high school. Man, that must be amazing. Why? Because everybody seems old. So Mary, who's 13 or 14 years old, has a cousin in her 60s or 70s, and she's looking at her going, man, she is well stricken in years. She was a godly lady, this lady Elizabeth. In fact, when we first read about her and her husband earlier in this chapter, the the Bible says some astounding things about them. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse number 5. The Bible says there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, meaning that his wife, Elizabeth, her dad was a priest as well. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Here's God's testimony of Elizabeth, that she's obeying the Lord. She's walking in the commandments and the ordinances. Maybe they didn't reach to the level of, of a commandment, but a strong suggestion of God. She's walking in all of them and in the ordinances of the priest and in the ordinance of the temple. She's literally, here's God's testimony of Elizabeth. She is without blame. Like you could follow this woman around in her daily life. You could hear the interaction with friends and family. You could see how she acts at home. You could see everything about her and she's without blame. Um, Same standard for a pastor. She had that kind of commitment to the things of God. It wasn't easy for her. It's not easy for anybody. She had that kind of commitment and obedience to the Lord. She was blameless. I mean, that's just a high standard. I just want you to understand who we're dealing with. She was, wasn't only a daughter. She was faithful. She wasn't only faithful. She was blameless. She wasn't only faithful and blameless, daughter of a priest, wife of a priest, She was a woman who went through real-life problems. In verse number 7 of our text, or in chapter 1, the Bible talks about Zacharias and Elizabeth and says, And they had no child, 
because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now stricken in years. Like all girls, Elizabeth desired to have a child and she had none. She, she couldn't have a baby and now the time of womanhood had passed her by, if you will, and there was no hope of her having a baby. She was well stricken in years. There was no hope of her having a baby and this was intensely difficult in that culture. It's really difficult in our culture when that happens, when a woman wants a child and can't have one, but in that culture, it was ex- ex- elevated to a whole new level. Why? Well, to be childless in that culture was economically and socially disastrous. Parents had no one to support them in their old age if they didn't have children. We're commanded, children were commanded in the Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 and 8, to care for your parents, to care for your own. Matter of fact, the Bible says, if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel or you're, you're worse than an idol worshiper or a Satan worshiper or an abject rejecter of God. You're commanded to take care of those who are older that you may provide for them. By the way, still a biblical principle today. You might argue, well, pastor, they didn't have social security and an arduous tax system. I would agree with you. Vote different. It's still a biblical command. It was a command. If you didn't have a child, you didn't have anybody to take care of you. Not only that, if you didn't have a child, most people assumed your barrenness was because of some deep sin in your life. And Jewish teachers and rabbis generally or regularly insisted that a man would divorce his childless wife so that he could procreate. Think about that if you went in for marriage counseling because things aren't going well and the, the teacher, the counselor goes, yeah, here's the problem. You don't have children, so you need to divorce her, kick her to the curb and find somebody who could have kids. That was a regular thing. Women would mock you. Your social uh, engagements were much smaller all because you didn't have kids and you were perceived to be a sinner. And Elizabeth lived under that weight the entirety of her adult life, probably from the time she was 14, 15, and now she's in her 60s or 70s. This woman had known heartache. I'm thankful God allows us to see that in the Bible. I'm thankful that not every Christian in the Bible, not every hero uh, in the Bible is made to seem like their rose or or their, their life was some beautiful primrose path of ease and comfort. I'm thankful God allows us to see that they had real problems in a real world and real difficulties and a real God would get them through their real problems. Why? Because your life is going to be difficult and your life is going to be challenging and my life is going to have uh, uphill climbs and downhill climbs and we're going to get scraped up and we're going to get messed up and people are going to hurt us and we might even hurt some people. But there is a God in heaven who just like he got Elizabeth through this will get us through it as well. Elizabeth's Elizabeth's husband was a man named Zacharias, as I said earlier, and he was a good man. He was a godly man. He was a priest, but he lived during a time when there was a ton of priests in the area. There were 18,000 priests in Israel. Think about that, 18,000 priests. So there were too many priests to serve in certain offices on a regular basis. So they would come into work and they would work about a month out of the year um, 
They would do other things, but they would serve in the, in the temple, the synagogue, whatever, about a month out of the year. And, and when they would come in, they would cast lots to determine what jobs they would do. And while Zacharias is serving his time as the priest that year, the lot is cast on him to burn incense to the Lord, verse number nine. So he picks the incense card, if you will, out of the hat. Now, this is a huge deal. It was such a powerful deal that a priest could only serve in that office one time when that job was offered later. He would never be able to put his name into the hat. It was one time. Many priests lived their entire life in ministry, doing the same thing Zechariah did, and were never allowed to burn incense. I mean, this was a powerful, powerful, intimate, wonderful event that Zacharias was about to be a part of. Zacharias goes in and I, there's a lot I don't have time to say, but Zacharias went in to offer incense unto the Lord. And while he is in offering incense of the Lord, unto the Lord, the angel of God comes and speaks unto him and says, Zacharias, your prayer is answered and you're going to have a son. You say, pastor, do you think Zacharias was praying for a son? I don't believe that at all. You say, why wouldn't he be praying for a son? Because he was an old man. When's the last time you met a 65-year-old man praying for a baby to come around the house? I tell you, I'm only 50, and the thought of having a baby in the house on a regular basis is scary to me. Matter of fact, my daughter said, Dad, when we get married and have kids and we come to see you, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you stay here. I'm going to a motel. Why? Because I don't want to get woke up in the middle of the night. Can any older people? I went through that. I endured that. We've got some guys in their 40s that have kids in our church. And I'll be honest with you, I just make fun of you and laugh at you. And they're like, oh, I'm so tired. Yeah, you got the thrill. You pay the bill. Even as an old man, Abraham, not my fault. But I'll tell you this, I've never prayed for a child. By the time I turned 29, I was done and happy being done. Can I get an amen from any other sane people in the crowd? Some of you are like, I just, I just miss babies. Get a puppy. They cause problems too. I promise. You say, well, if Zacharias wasn't praying for us, no, the Bible doesn't say what he was praying for. I'm not saying he wasn't. It just makes no sense for a dude who's old to pray for a son when his wife has also went through the, the, the change of life that she went through. It, it's impossible. There's no way they're going to have a child. You say, well, what do you think he was praying for? I think he was praying for what he prayed for the entirety of his life. Listen to me, the salvation of Israel. Well, how did God answer his prayer? Well, in order for the Messiah to come, there had to come one to pave the way for the Messiah. And the angel comes to Zacharias and tells Zacharias, your wife is going to have a son and he's going to pave the way for the Messiah. And so his prayer is answered because salvation is coming to Israel. Zechariah, like you and me, is not always a person of faith. So he says this, how do I know this is going to be? The angel of the Lord wasn't going to deal with his faithlessness. So he says, you want to know how you're going to know this is going to be? Yeah, how's this going to come to pass? How do I know this? And the angel of the Lord says, you'll be mute till the child is born. But you won't be able to speak. I think he could hear, the Bible doesn't say, I think he could hear things that were said, but he wasn't able to speak. And by the way, this was in a day when they didn't have ballpoint pens and, and you know, mead notebooks. 
to walk around and tell you every thought that you're having. Very limited ability to speak. And so Zechariah fulfills his offices, fulfills his office. He goes home and he tells his wife by way of written note that we are going to have a son. I think she laughs at him thinking, what happened to you in the incense room? Did you smoke the incense that you were supposed to be offering to the Lord? No, he promised her that this was from the Lord. God is going to answer this prayer. So they came together as married couples are expected to do according to the scripture. And Elizabeth is found to be with child. Well, I don't know this. I've never seen this. But if you're almost 70 or somewhere around there and you get pregnant, you're freaked out. Every once in a while, we'll have people in our church, and I understand every reason why they do it. They, maybe they've, they, they've wanted a child or they've lost a child before, whatever, and they, they uh, are expecting, and they don't want to tell anyone for a while for fear that something might happen, and they would have to go through the public grief that they went through before. So they hide away a little bit, and they don't tell people. I get it. Some of you have been there before. I get it. Though I wish you had asked your church to pray for you and your health, but that's totally the person's decision and I totally get it. Well, Elizabeth is in that place and she hides herself away, the Bible says, for five months. Five months, nobody knows she's pregnant. Well, during this time, the angel of God isn't, hasn't only worked in Elizabeth. He goes to her young niece, Mary, and he says to Mary, Mary, you're going to have a child, and the child is going to be the savior of the world. Mary responds with, with a, a very clear and, and very powerful response. How can I get pregnant seeing I know not a man? I've never been with a man. I, I, I'm a virgin and I'll never uh, be able to get pregnant without knowing a man. And the angel said to her, oh, Mary, you don't understand. That which is already conceived in you, because he uses the past tense, that which is conceived in you is of the Holy Ghost of God. So God has worked on Elizabeth. He's working with Mary. And in verse number 35 and 36, Mary needed some encouragement. Um, verse number 34, then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And Mary, I know you got questions, so let me just tell you this right now. The, thy cousin... Verse 36, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. The angel of God called her an old lady. Not being rude, just where she was. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So Mary, here's your old lady cousin, Elizabeth. She's with child. You're with child. Well, Mary was ecstatic. Mary was over the top excited. Mary couldn't hold it back. So she runs to Elizabeth's house and she gets to Elizabeth's house. She runs into the door in my mind, in my imagination, verse number 40. She runs into Elizabeth's house and she salutes Elizabeth. Cousin Elizabeth, so good to see you. Do I have a story to tell? And it came to pass, verse 41, that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. Why? 
Because the one they waited for, for so long, had finally come. There's a lot to take in for sure. But it led to Elizabeth's spontaneous song that teaches us about the value and the purpose of heaven. Additionally, it gives us some insight into the heart of this incredible woman of faith. As we consider her words, look in verse number 42. This is Elizabeth talking, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou, Elizabeth talking to Mary, blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. She speaks out with a loud voice. Now, if you know me, you know I like to find Greek words and what they mean and and to help us to understand the Bible that way. Well, verse number 42 is uh, the word voice is the Greek word phono, and the word loud is the Greek word mega. You put those two together, and you have Elizabeth cried out like a megaphone. This wasn't a time of quiet praise. This wasn't a time of reservedness. She broadcast her song for all to hear, her praise for all to hear. She wanted everybody to know how she felt. She wasn't embarrassed by a single person on the planet. Not at all. You know, God likes to hear us sing. Matter of fact, I would say he really likes to hear us sing. I was going to read this morning all of the verses in Psalms about singing to the Lord, but I, uh, as I studied that, I thought, well, we wouldn't be out till 1.30 if that's all that I did. Psalm 100 and verse number two, the Bible says, serve the Lord with gladness, come before his presence with singing. God loves to hear you sing. Well, well, yeah, I know, Pastor, that God loves to hear me sing, but you don't know my voice that I have. Can I tell you, God gave you your voice and he wants you to use it to sing. Oh, well, but Pastor, I, I might be off key. Let me guarantee you, you're gonna be off key. God's not measuring the quality of your voice. It's not a music competition. This isn't like heaven's got talent. This is, I'm praising the Lord. And praise based on the understanding of who Jesus is touches the heart of God. Praise based on who Jesus is touches the heart of God. I think there are non-believers sometimes who see what we do week in and week out and Christmas in and Christmas out, and they wonder, what is up with those people? What's the big deal? Can I tell you? Their problem is they have no perspective. Their perspective is lost. Their puzzle hasn't come together yet. They're struggling to understand the magnitude and the power of God. There, there's probably a lot of Christians, maybe some here even this morning, who believe that, the, 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 that Jesus is the Messiah and they've put their faith in him. And they believe in him enough, they go through the motion, but they just, motions, they just can't figure out why others seem so encouraged by it all. 
They wonder why Bernie would be raising his hands or Lynn would be praising the Lord or Debbie would be lifting her hands on the platform or tears would come to the eyes of a believer in the crowd when we talk about singing only a holy God who, who, who paid the sin debt for us. Why is that such a big deal? Can I tell you, they have perspective, but they don't have a mature perspective. As we are still on the front end of this Christmas season, Let me just say that we should focus on the reason we celebrate Christmas. This isn't some trite event. It's not like, well, we got to find something to do when it's cold outside. No. This is a time of year when we should be honest with the futility and the lostness of our life without Christ the futility of our life before we met Christ, the reality that if Jesus doesn't impact us more than in, this, than in just this life, we are all men, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 19, that we are all men most miserable. We should think about the love of God that led him to be born a savior. We should understand that in response, we should praise him with a proverbial or as a proverbial megaphone. As we worship this Christmas, I hope our passion is sincere and our joy is spontaneous. Let's determine to give Jesus the worship due his name by singing out and praising him with all our hearts. Now, it would be weird to sing Silent Night as loud as you possibly could. But worshiping God with all our heart doesn't mean being as loud as we possibly can, but the exuberance of praise in our life. A proper perspective leads to praise. Look at verse number 40. Two, and spake out with a loud voice and blessed the Lord the, uh, and said, blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Uh, verse number 43, and whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Faith is not powerful until it's personal. Faith is not powerful until it's personal. You ever wonder why Elizabeth was filled with so much joy? We hear her say that Jesus is my Lord. It's a first person possessive pronoun. He, he's mine. He, he could be yours too, but, but he's my Lord. He's the mother of the one we've been waiting for. He's the, one, the mother of the promised one. He's the one that we've been looking forward to. This baby in the womb at the very early stages of development is her Lord. He's hers. She wants to know him in a more intimate and personal way. There are occasions in the book of Acts. There's this one occasion in particular in Acts chapter 19 when a man saw the apostles casting demons out of somebody. And there's a group of dudes who thought, well, we want to cast them out too. We like that kind of power, so we're going to do it. But they hadn't been given that kind of power from God, but he really wanted to. And so he tried to cast a demon out of somebody. In Acts chapter 19, verse number five, the Bible says, and the evil spirit or the demon answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are ye or who are you? 
I point this out because the word no used in this verse um, is used with different nuances. The evil spirit, and when it talked about Jesus, I know it means I have a personal experience with Jesus. With Paul, it says I'm familiar with. I know about Paul, but Jesus, I, I know him. I have a personal relationship with him. I, I have a personal relationship with my wife. I know my wife in a personal level. I know about Prince Charles. I've never met Prince Charles, but if you said, hey, who's Prince Charles? I, oh, he's the king of the British Empire. He's the king of England. His mother was, was Queen Elizabeth, longest tenured monarch over the, the empire. I know some things about him. I could tell you about his first wife. I could tell you about his sons. I could tell you about some of his grandkids. I know some things about him. I have information about him. I'm familiar with, but I don't know him. I don't know him and I, 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 never, I never will. Why? Because they're not calling pastors from San Diego to go meet with Prince Charles. And some well-meaning person is probably going to come to me, well, it could happen. If it does, I'll be the first to say I was wrong. And we'll have a spot of tea and bad food because English food's terrible. It's just somebody told me, I eat a lot of English food. No wonder you're skinny. Um, if you've never been to England, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you've been to England, you understand it's a great place for dieting. Um, Jesus, I know. Jesus, I have a personal relationship. See, there's some people in the room today, people watching online today. They know Jesus is the son of God. They know that he was born of a virgin. They know that he lived 33 and a half years on this earth and never sinned. They know he was beaten and crucified, that he bled and he died for sins. They know that his blood is efficacious, that it will wash away all our sins. They know that he'll save anyone who repents and accepts him as savior. You can be, believe all of that and still not know him. You can be very familiar with who Jesus is. You can know everything about him and still not know him. And let me say it this way. It's like this. You can know everything about him, but not have changed teams. You can know everything about Jesus. I've talked to some atheists. I remember witnessing to Gene Simmons and sharing the gospel to Gene Simmons one time. He knew the, the basis for the group Kiss. He knew everything I knew about Jesus. He, he, he knew everything about him, but he hadn't changed teams. You can know everything about Jesus. Oh, he is the son of God. Yes, I, I believe that. I believed he was sinless. I believe his blood could wash away my sins. I believe all that. You can know all of that and still not know him, and still not have changed teams. You know him, but you're still playing for yourself. You know him, but you're still wearing your own jersey. You know him, but you've not left that franchise for the eternal franchise that's Jesus Christ. Faith isn't powerful till it's personal. That's why some people can say, I tried church and I tried going to church and I, I, I believed all of those things and it didn't do anything for me. Can I tell you why it didn't do anything for you? Because you never changed teams. You believed it all, but you stayed trusting in yourself for your eternal destiny. I mean, there's somebody here today that believes everything that I'm saying, but you're not saved because you've never submitted and put your faith and trust in only Jesus Christ. And to you, I would say, make your faith personal. Submit to Jesus Christ. Put your faith and trust in him and him alone. Why? Because faith's not powerful until it's personal. 
That's why there'll be many in heaven, uh, or, or I'm sorry, many who live eternally in hell going, but I believed it. But you didn't make it personal with simple childlike faith. Faith isn't powerful until it's personal. Verse 43 as well. For whence is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Humility precedes helpfulness. Humility precedes helpfulness. I love this example we find in Elizabeth. She was older than Mary and in that culture, I don't say this arrogantly, in that culture, Mary should have went in, waited to be spoken to and kept her mouth shut. That was the culture. Elizabeth would have talked to her. She was a godly lady, but Mary should have walked in and just been quiet. Elizabeth had a miracle story of her own to tell. Women who go through the change of life, who have old husbands, who never have had children, they don't get pregnant. Elizabeth had a miracle to, to tell. She had been waiting her whole life. Mary was just a kid. But when she sees Mary... She says at the end of verse number 42, blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And whence is this or why is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Mary is so filled with joy, she wants to share with someone and she runs to Elizabeth's house. And rather than Elizabeth turning all of this around to say, Mary, I've got a story to tell you. And Mary goes, wait, I've got a story to tell you. You ever talk to those people and you're just waiting to talk? The other day I was on a cell phone call with a friend of mine. A cell phone, it's not like I'm 80. I was on a call with a friend of mine and we were both trying to talk at the same time. And we both realized it because there was a little bit of a delay. And I was like, you go. And he was saying, you go. And you go. And we both sat silent for about seven seconds, it seemed like. And, we're like, and he goes, okay, I'll go. And just as he said, okay, I'll go, I started to go. It was kind of a frustrating experience. But here's Elizabeth and here's Mary. They're standing in front of each other. And Mary runs in and she says, hey, Elizabeth. And immediately the Holy Spirit of God witnesses to Elizabeth in her heart that inside of her is your Lord that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost and Elizabeth forgets the entire story of her life and begins to worship and praise the Lord why because she's humble I said she's humble you know why people don't believe in Christ a lack of humility they think they can do it on their own. They think they understand a timetable. I'll believe that eventually. I'll believe that tomorrow. I'll believe that next week. I'll believe that next month. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. But I'll do it on my timetable. No, no. Humility precedes helpfulness. And let me tell you, Elizabeth was a picture of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse number 8, talking about Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Elizabeth set her personal joy aside for a moment to share in Mary's. Not only does humility precede helpfulness, the blessing of believing leads to becoming. Verse 45 and blessed is she that believe, 
for there shall be a performance of those things which are told her of the Lord. Don't miss this. You said Mary was blessed because she believed. For those things shall be a performance. For there shall be a performance of those things. In in other words, she, Mary, could take God's word to the bank. He'd do what he promised to do. Verse 45, the word performance means to bring something together, to make something, to become. It's like we could read it this way. And blessed is she that believe, for there shall be a making of something of the things which were told her by the Lord. Or, or, or there shall be a, a coming together of those things which were told her of the Lord. Or Mary, what God said to you, yeah, that's going to come to pass. The child which is in you is of the Holy Ghost, and he will save his people from their sins. The blessing of believing leads to becoming. We learn so much from Elizabeth. Her words were powerful. Her attitude was exemplary. I think most of us would readily admit we have yet to arrive in our life. We have room to grow. Wouldn't it be great if on the front end of this Christmas season that you said, Lord, help me to become, help me to grow, help me to be closer to you than I've ever been before. Imagine if we focused on Christ and our perspective became proper. Imagine if we made sure that our relationship with Christ was personal and that we were truly saved and close to him. Imagine if we set aside uh, all of our pride and our self-ambition and we allowed humility to help us. Imagine if we allowed Jesus in such a, to lead us in such a way and we followed him in such a way that, that he had the freedom to continue to work in us and help us to become what he desires us to become. I imagine if we did that, this would be the greatest Christmas you've ever had. The greatest Christmas you've ever had. So I read the story of Elizabeth, my heart is overwhelmed with the thought of a coming Messiah. The one mankind had waited for for 2,000 years. 2,000 years? And that's a long time. That's, that's, that's almost like forever. Who waits 2,000 years for anything? I'll be honest with you, I hear about sales at stores and I hear about bizarre people who take their tents and they set up their tents like 48 hours before so they can be the first one to buy a new video game. I don't know about you, that's weird to me. I'm not sleeping on the ground for a video game. I'm not, I'm just not doing it. People are like, oh, but I gotta be first in line. I'll wait till the, till the, you can buy it on, Offer up. Who waits 2,000 years? And then I thought, we've been waiting 2,000 years. As a church, we've been waiting for the Lord's return for 2,000 years. We're looking forward to the Lord's return for 2,000 years. And let me be real candid with you. One of these days, he's coming back. 
Well, when's that going to happen? I don't know, but it could happen any day. I think there are some prophetic things. I said to the 830 crowd, I wish I could have preached on prophecy today, though I am preaching on prophecy. I wish I could have preached on prophecy today because there's some amazing things that are happening. Now, God's not bound by what we know. He has everything orchestrated and set in order. But I believe this, he can literally come back any day, including today. I think it'd be great if we didn't celebrate Christmas this year here that we had a turkey dinner in heaven. When I see our world, I see our world in desperate need of Jesus. Being a chaplain has exacerbated my burden for this world. SDPD chaplain. Seeing the deplorable nature of sin. The consequence of drunkenness and drug use. Family violence, greed, envy, it's everywhere. In 1744, Charles Wesley felt the same way. He was meditating one day on a verse out of Haggai chapter 2, verse number 7, and God says in Haggai 2, 7, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. I look forward to a day when this earth is filled with the glory of God. Wesley looked at the situation of orphans in the area of London and the class divide, very wealthy people, very poor people. It was not very dissimilar from the state of California where we have politicians trying to make a, an exclusive class and a broken class. Wesley saw this and was intensely burdened. He wrote these words, Come thou long expected Jesus with the intent to help people remember Christ's first coming Christmas and commemorating the nativity of Jesus and then to encourage folks to prepare for the second coming. The hymn lay relatively dormant for 110 years until a young Baptist preacher at 21 years of age named Charles Spurgeon preached a Christmas message when he was 21 and in it, he referred to the song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And he did that to illustrate this point that is clearly given in the song. And that is that Jesus Christ was born a king. He was not born a prince. He's the only one ever born who was born a king and not a prince. Kings aren't born. Princes are born. And Spurgeon was helping his crowd to understand that Jesus Christ alone is born a king. The last line of the first verse of this song written by Wesley says this, Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. We believe that word or that phrase what is influenced by 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, who said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator. 
The longing that you have in your soul will not be filled by a man or a woman, single brother or sister in Christ. Marriage will not fill the void that is there. Dear lady like Elizabeth who can't have children, your child cannot fill the void that is there. It can only be filled by Christ. Well, if I get a bigger house, it will fill that void. No, it won't fill that void. If I get lit up, that'll fill that void. No, getting lit up won't fill that void. If I just get laid on a Friday night, that'll fill the void. No, it won't fill the void. If I just get more money and be a millionaire, no, a multi-millionaire. No, how about a billionaire? That would fill the void. No, it won't fill the void. Why? Because there's a vacuum in your heart that can only be filled by the person of Jesus Christ, God the Creator. That's why Wesley could write that he is the joy of every longing heart. Not all of you know this song. I've asked Debbie to sing it for us. the Jesus info test do you know him personally if not today 
is the day to receive him. He fills the void that was created by God to cause you to look for the Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will because nothing else can. Christian, I wonder today, are you living for your king? Are you obedient to your king? Is there someone you need to make things right and be a peacemaker with? Are you obedient to him? We have a time of reflection coming. If you're here and you need to let Jesus fill the void of your life, we'll have some pastors here and some counselors available. We'd love to take the Bible and show you from God's eternal word how heaven can be your home. And if you're a Christian here today, opportunity is yours. God is speaking. Father, bless our time in the word this morning. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.